0: So I have the honor today of preaching as we're currently in a series called in breaking where we're looking at how Jesus doesn't just want to reach out to the world, but actually wants to break into the world and the way he wants to do that is through you and through me. And so we're going to actually jump ahead a little bit today. We finished Matthew four last week. We're going to end of Matthew 7 today to look at what is commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus' most famous sermon given in the book of Matthew. Now, we're going to start at the end of Matthew 7 and work our way backwards to Matthew 5 over the next few weeks. And the reason we're doing that is not because we think we're smarter than Jesus and we figured out a better way to preach it. Right? It's because sometimes when you get really familiar with something, it helps to step back and take a fresh look from a different angle in hopes that you might see something that you've been taking for granted all along. So we're going to jump at the end of the Sermon of the Mount today, at the end of Matthew 7, and see what Jesus has to say in this, his most famous discourse. Matthew seven twenty-one through 29 says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only people who do the will of my father in heaven. On that day, lots of people will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name, didn't we? We cast out demons in your name. We perform lots of powerful deeds in your name. Then I will have to say to them, I never knew you. You're a bunch of evildoers. Go away from me. So then everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Heavy rain fell, floods rose up, the winds blew and beat on that house and it didn't fall because it was founded on the rock. And a foolish man, and everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't do them, they will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. Heavy rain fell, floods rose up, the winds blew and battered the house, and down it fell. It fell with a great crash. And so it was, when Jesus finished these words, that the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them, you see, on his own authority, not like the scribes used to do. Now, as Morgan mentioned last week, uh, when we look through the book of Matthew, we see all sorts of echoes of the Old Testament taking place here. We see uh, echoes of, of... of the Exodus and Jesus' baptism and being led into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted. We saw last week echoes of the call of Abraham and the call of Noah as Jesus calls the disciples to come and follow him. The reason Matthew's doing this is because he's trying to prove to this mostly Jewish audience that he's writing to that this Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the long-awaited promised Messiah that God had been promising all along. And here we see Jesus coming up on the side of a mountain to deliver a discourse about God's law and God's word to a people explaining to them, here's how God wants you to live life. Obviously, there's an echo of Moses coming down Mount Sinai, holding the tablets to proclaim to the people of Israel, here's what God says your life ought to look like. Now, the reason Moses was proclaiming that to the Israelites in the Old Testament It's because God was saying, hey, Israel, you're my people. I've called you out of Egypt, out of slavery to be my people. And I want you to live life in such a way that shows these other nations around you that there is one true God in heaven who rules and and proclaims. And his kingdom that is coming does not come through force and through manipulation and through powering over people, but through grace and humility and service. And so Jesus is doing the same thing here as he gives this discourse of the Sermon on the Mount to this people sitting on the side of a mountain. He's saying, people, this is what God wants your life to look like. Here's the purpose of your existence. And the exclamation point that Jesus gives in this sermon, the last thought that he wants to leave us as audience with is a parable about two people building their houses. Which makes this not just some other off-the-wall parable that Jesus gives in the course of one of the Gospels. But the parable through which we can understand and interpret all of what he's saying here in the Sermon on the Mount. And so I want to look, take a closer look at this passage by looking through three lenses. I want to look at the storm, the builders, and the rock. Alright, first the storm. Matthew seven twenty five and 27 says, Heavy rain fell. Floods rose up, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it didn't fall because it was founded on the rock. Verse 27, heavy rain fell, floods rose up, the winds blew and battered the house, and down it fell, it fell with a great crash. Talking about the one that was built on the sand. Now, last Sunday marked the 10-year anniversary of the New Orleans Saints' return to the Superdome. Any Saints fans in the house? All right, there we go, there we go. Now, the reason they were returning to the Superdome It's because roughly a year prior to that, on August 29, 2005, a massive hurricane blew through the city of New Orleans, spanning 400 miles wide, delivering winds up to 140 miles an hour, causing water surges up to 30 feet high that left 80% of the city of New Orleans buried underwater. Now, we know it as Hurricane Katrina. Now, many of you are here today because you lived through that and had to relocate because you lost everything that you had. Now, Hurricane Katrina was a literal storm that we witnessed on live television, but I believe it also serves as kind of an example of the mindset that we approach this kind of parable with. When we hear Jesus talk about the storms of life, I believe Katrina is a good representation of where our 21st century American mindset tends to go. We hear Jesus talk about the heavy rains and the floods and the wind. Immediately we begin to think of, of those kinds of crisis moments where we suffer some kind of physical loss, sickness, financial strain, relationship breakup, betrayal by someone we care about. See, when we begin to think that what Jesus is saying here is if we'll just obey his word and grit our teeth through the midst of this crisis and just try really hard not to lose faith, then eventually we'll be okay. But those kind of circumstances, those, those kind of crisis moments are not what Jesus is pinpointing here. So the storm Jesus is saying that threatens to destroy our lives is the accusation that takes place in our hearts when those kind of moments hit us. In other words, the real storm is, is not the external circumstances, but the internal dialogue that takes place in our hearts. So here's what's interesting about Katrina. The hurricane itself is not what destroyed the city. What destroyed the city was the failure of the levees that surrounded New Orleans to withstand the pressure of the elements when they got hit with them. See, further research went on to show that the, the support beams that were designed to, to reinforce the flood wall were not dug nearly as deep as they ought to have been dug, and the soil in which they were placed did not pass the initial uh, stability soil requirements when they put them in place to begin with. See, it wasn't the wind and the rain and the thunder that brought New Orleans to its knees. It was the failure of an internal structure and its ability to withstand the pressure of the elements that came against it. Now, if those barriers of those levees would have been properly maintained and correctly implemented, I believe New Orleans could have survived the storm. Now, there would have been plenty of damage to be sure. I mean, it was a massive storm but not to the extent, the catastrophic level of 2,000 lives lost and nearly $200 billion in damage. See, it was the lack of the internal structures to withstand the external circumstances. In the same way, the storm Jesus is referring to here, though it can be felt through the wind and the rain of our circumstances, the losses that we suffer, ultimately has more to do with the internal structure of our hearts than it does the external situations that we face. See, when we lose someone that we love, when our health begins to fail us, when our finances get tight, we don't get that promotion at work that we were hoping for, when our spouse doesn't treat us the way we want them to treat us, the conversation in our heart begins to sound something like this. Why would God allow this to happen to me? God, if you really cared, you would intervene here and take away the pain and the pressure that I'm feeling. God, you either don't love me or you're not powerful enough to do anything about it. Clearly, God, you've lost control. And I've been asking these questions and making those statements many times over the last few months, if I'm to be honest with you. So my prayers lately is my wife and I are going through our adoption process. And we've been waiting over 10 months for, a, a, honestly, a, a government that's battling corruption and political instability and massive upheaval of protests and riots in a foreign country has taken 10 months to do a five-minute job of stamping off on our piece of paper that would allow us to travel over to that country to bring our baby girl home that we've been waiting for for 16 months. And as I've been praying and I've been wrestling through this, my prayers have gone a little bit like this. I, I come to God and I say, God, I know you're heart is for the orphan. I know your heart is for adoption. I know that you're just, I know that you're righteous, and I know that you're good. So, God, I don't understand why you let this orphan girl suffer at the unjust unjust hands of this corrupt government and, and get stuck in this orphanage rather than coming home to a family who just wants to love her. God, what are you doing? Like, explain yourself to me. This doesn't make sense to me. Nothing's lining up with what I know about who you are. And in those moments, hopelessness and frustration and mistrust towards God begin to try to creep and find their way into my heart. And I'm tempted to kind of shake my hands at the heavens and just say, you know what, God, I'm going to do this on my own. I don't need you. I don't know if you've ever been there. That's where I've been the last few months. And it's tough. Fear and anxiety and hopelessness begin to, to rise up, begin to flood my soul. And I have to wonder if the levees of my heart can withstand the pressure that's mounting. See, This is exactly what Jesus' audience, as they're listening to this Sermon on the Mount, it's what they're going through. If you remember a few weeks ago, Morgan talked about Jesus' first words on the scene as he steps into his public ministry, well, repent for the kingdom of heaven is arriving. Now, to that initial audience, these these Jewish men and women, when they heard the kingdom of heaven is arriving, they initially would have gone into the mindset of, he's claiming to be the long-awaited Messiah. He's claiming to be the one who's bringing God's kingdom to earth as in heaven. And in their mindset, what that meant was, Oh, he has come to liberate us from our foes. He's come to set us free from the oppression of the Roman government. He's come to reestablish Israel and its prominence like it was in the days of King David. Oh, it's coming. Our slavery's coming to an end. Our oppression's coming to an end. And we're going to be in charge once and for all. Yeah, bring it, Jesus. And so they follow him up on the side of this mountain, waiting to hear what he has to say. Like, what are the marching orders he's about to give us here? What building does he want us to storm first to to make this thing happen? And they're thinking this is Jesus' pregame speech, in a sense. His, they can take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom moment. (laughs) And understanding that to be the context, in Matthew 5, Jesus launches into this sermon on the mount by saying the epic words, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, I can only imagine the, the audience probably did a collective Scooby-Doo impersonation of that moment. Er? Like, what is this, this proposed Messiah guy talking about? I mean, they're scratching their heads, confused about what, how, how is that going to bring down the Roman Empire? Jesus then goes on to talk about being salt and light, about loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you, about giving to those in need, about praying and fasting and not being anxious about your life. All issues addressing the motivation of the people's hearts and having nothing to do with the oppression of the Roman government. With every word that Jesus spoke, the vision of their returning to prominence was dying a not so very slow death. Hopes of liberation. Injustice ripped from their grasp, feeling abandoned by God yet again, the accusation in their hearts begins to rise up and build its case against the God who was supposed to set them free. Now, knowing this is happening, Jesus closes the sermon by saying, hey, there's a storm coming to your heart. And whatever your life is built upon is going to determine whether or not that storm is going to destroy you or take you out. See, when difficulties hit us and the floodwaters of fear and anxiety start to rise, if the levees in our soul are not reinforced and maintained to withstand those elements, we will soon be overwhelmed with mistrust towards God. And what do we do when we're frightened? What do you do when you're scared? You panic. You reach for whatever is closest to you that you think is going to save you and bring security into your life. Like you ever ridden a roller coaster? When you hit that first hill, what do you do? You go up the hill like this. As soon as you go down, you're like, ah! Or when maybe you're driving with your 16 or 17-year-old teenage son or daughter. What do you reach for? The panic bar, right? When we're frightened, we reach for something that we believe can stabilize the situation. We reach for something we believe can save us from the impending threat. Jesus is saying when life doesn't go according to our agenda and we allow the mistrust towards God to take root in our hearts, then we're going to reach for the wrong kind of savior and our house will come crashing down around us. So the question we have to ask ourselves is this, do I allow my circumstances to define who God is or do I allow who God is to redefine my circumstances? Which brings us to the second lens I want to look at this passage through, the builders. The builders. Jesus gives us two types of builders here in verses 24 and 26. He says, so then everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't do them, they will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. We have a wise man and we have a foolish man. One is doing the words of Jesus, one is not. But wait a minute. Right before Jesus says this in verses 21 to 23, we just read... He said something completely different. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, enter the kingdom of heaven, only people who do the will of my father. On that day, lots of people will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. Didn't we cast out demons in your name? perform lots of powerful deeds in your name. Then I will say to them, I never knew you. You're a bunch of evildoers. Go away from me. Now, how can Jesus in one sentence say the evildoers, the, the foolish person is doing all these good things in his name And then turn around the next sentence and say, but it's the wise person who does the things that I want him to do. Is there a contradiction? Well, no, there's not. Matthew is showing us here that Jesus's idea, his understanding of what it means to do his word is completely different than the religious stuff and the the moral deeds that we tend to think of when we think of doing the words of Jesus. See, can you see the point Jesus is wanting to make here? See, the wise builder and the foolish builder don't actually look all that different, do they? I mean, Jesus says nothing about the houses being different. He just says they're building houses. For all we know, it's the same floor plan, right? Like KB Homes, or they're just building the same thing over and over again. Both are doing good deeds. Both are fighting for social justice. Both are are preaching God's word. Both are performing miracles In Jesus' name. But Jesus says one is doing his word while the other is not. So then what's the difference? Well, the difference is the motivation behind the works, it's what they're ultimately trusting in, or as Jesus puts it, the foundation upon which they're building. See, the foolish builder and his religious activity is, is really just saying this. I don't know that I can trust God to be good and righteous and merciful and gracious. I don't know that God really loves me unconditionally. So I better do something to make him love me or at least put him in my debt. He's basically saying, yo, Jesus, you see the job I did? Time to pay up. See, though they're doing lots of good works. Jesus says they're not doing his word. See, they're still wanting to be in control, still grasping for security and something that they can feel and touch on their own power and their own ability. They're still reaching for the security of creation rather than trusting in the love of creator. And this is why Jesus calls it a foundation of sand. You see, what is sand? Sand is a bunch of small, tiny, broken, weathered rocks. That have, have been formed together, have come together. But when that comes together, whatever puts pressure on that sand begins to mold and shape and conform the sand to its image. Like a footprint, a handprint, waves taking down a sandcastle. So those are a bunch of tiny little rocks that, when pressed upon, give way to the weight of whatever is pressing upon it. It shifts under weight. See, idolatry and and moralism are like sand. So we put our trust and our hope and our identity and our security in the boyfriend or the girlfriend and the, the spouse or that position at work or that dollar amount or that reputation, that feeling of pleasure, that image online. And we're putting the weight of our lives onto something that is just as broken, just as finite, just as unstable and shifting as we are and it will never be able to carry the weight that only God was designed to carry in our lives. Because you see, tiny, broken, worn-down rocks of creation are just cheap substitutes for the massive and immovable rock that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Adam and Eve reached for the fruit in their mistrust towards God. Noah reached for alcohol. Abraham reached for Hagar. David reached for Bathsheba. Judas reached for 30 pieces of silver. Peter reached for his sword. What about you? What about me? What do we begin to reach for when God doesn't seem to be playing by our rules? Is it sex? Pornography? That recognition? Facebook? Drugs? Alcohol? Maybe it's good works. Maybe it's being really good at being really good so that I can feel confident that that God's going to, he kind of has to take care of me. Because, well, you know, I'm, I'm pretty awesome. And God owes me for being pretty awesome. If that's the case, then might I suggest that the reason that we do that is because we've not fully trusted in the unconditional love that Jesus has towards us. You see, when we turn to idolatry in moments of crisis, what we're saying is God's love for me must not exist. And when we turn to moralism or religious deeds in our moments of crisis, what we're saying is God's love for me must be earned. Both are evidence of the fact that we don't really trust God's love for us to be unconditional. And that is where the rock comes in. See, Jesus having just given us this fear-inducing line of depart from me for I never knew you, goes into this. So then, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now, the so then is connecting the previous thought to the following thought. And the key to understanding this connection is found in that little word, new. Depart from me, I never knew you. Right? Jesus says these evildoers will depart from him because they never knew him, which by implication means that those who do know him will not be asked to depart from him, right? And what he's saying here is that out of this knowing him, the wise man builds his house on the rock. Now, this word know in the Greek is the word gnosko. Now, Gnosco doesn't just mean I, I'm acquainted with somebody, it doesn't just mean we're, we're friends. Gnosco means a deep, intimate heart knowledge. And the, it's, the, it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word yada, Y A D A. And yada is a Jewish idiom that's used to, to describe physical intimacy between a husband and a wife. Think of Genesis 4, where it says, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived. Right? That's not just talking about they were friends on Facebook. It's a deep, intimate, heart knowledge that says, I've given all of myself to you. My social life, my emotional life, my physical life, my spiritual life. All that I am, I place in your hands. That's what it means to gnosco somebody. In other words, Jesus is saying to these evildoers, Sure, you did all this stuff in my name. You understood my power. you were really good at being really good, but your heart never belonged to me. You never gave yourself fully to me. You kept something back. You didn't trust me with the most intimate part of who you are. In other words, you didn't trust my love for you. To do his word means to trust in that unconditional love and then to live life out of the the reservoir of that unconditional love. See, this is the heart of the entire Sermon on the Mount, right? I mean, for three chapters, Jesus is saying, love your enemies. Walk in humility. Don't be anxious about your life. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Love because you have been loved. See, we can't love our enemy unless we have a greater source of love that we're tapping into. In John 17, 3, Jesus goes on to say this. This is eternal life, that they know, gnosko, you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, and you have sent. He's not saying this is eternal life, that they have a mental understanding that God exists or that even this Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth hung on a cross. He's saying this is eternal life, that they give themselves in a deep, intimate heart knowledge to the one true God. See, doing Jesus' words isn't just performing good deeds in his name. It's trusting in his unconditional love and then loving others out of that love. Now, yes, that will produce good works, but the good works will be coming out of a rock solid foundation rather than a shifting, sandy one. I love how C.S. Lewis put it in his book, Mere Christianity. He put it like this. He said, to have faith in Christ means, of course, trying to do all that he says. There would be no sense in saying you trusted a person if you would not take his advice. Thus, if you have really handed yourself over to him, it must follow that you are trying to obey him but trying in a new way, a less worried way, not doing these things in order to be saved, but because he has begun to save you already. Not hoping to get to heaven as a reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because that first faint gleam of heaven is already inside you. In other words, just because you're here today, just because maybe you come every Sunday, just because maybe you even serve in M-Kids or go out with Kai Street or, or in a community group, doesn't necessarily mean you gnosco him. So you have to look at the, the foundation of your life and ask the question, am I holding my heart back? Am I withholding anything from Jesus? My will, my desires, my trust, my security, my whatever. Am I holding anything back? Or am I saying, like the Apostle Paul said, man, to me I count everything as loss if it means knowing Jesus and the power of his resurrection? Are you looking to other people or to your own achievements to find your identity, to find pleasure, to find worth because you don't truly trust God's love for you? See, this is why, by the way, a good and perfectly loving God would allow the storms to hit our lives in the first place. See, that's the question we immediately go to. If God is good, why would he allow bad things to happen to good people, right? Right? Well, here's why. Jesus says, we've got two houses. You can't tell the difference between the houses. You can't tell the difference between the builders unless you see the foundation in which they're building. Well, what's the only way you can know what the foundation is? It's when it's tested. Like before the storm comes, both houses are standing. Before the storm comes, both houses look secure. They look safe. They look stable. Does, you can't tell the difference until the storm comes. And then the foundation is revealed. See, so how would a good, perfectly loving God allow you to go through times of trial and difficulties? Because he wants you to know what you're trusting in ultimately. And in his mercy and in his loving kindness, he will rip those things bare and expose the sandy foundation on which you're building in hopes that you might come to repentance to turn away from the foolishness of the sand and find the security and the stability of the rock. See, friends, God isn't trying to punish us through these things. He's actually loving us better than we even love ourselves. He's saying, let me me show you what you're made for. Let me show you what you ought to be building on. The only way the foundation can be tested is for stress to be applied to it. Listen, if we're chasing after anything other than Jesus as that foundation... And man, by God's grace, my hope is that we'll come to a place of repentance. Say, I don't, I don't want to build on that anymore. I want to build on this. Scripture says it's the loving kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Sometimes that loving kindness comes in the form of a storm. But for many of us, including me, making that leap from not trusting God to placing our lives in his hands is not an easy one to make. So you look at what you've been through or some of the things that have been done to you. Some of the things you've done yourself, the anger and the shame and the frustration, the, the need to guard and protect yourself and those dear to you. are so tempting to look at God and say, sure, I believe Jesus forgives, but I'm not 100% confident that he can be trusted with the deepest longings of my soul. So what is it that can overcome this fear? What can overcome the mistrust and the doubts that rise up in our heart when, 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 when storms begin to hit us and bat, beat against our houses? Well, there's only one thing that can overcome that kind of fear, which brings us to the last lens I want to look at today, the rock. See, if fear and accusation motivate us to build on the sand, then what is it that can stare that fear and accusation in the face and motive, motivate us to build on the rock? What is it that reminds us of God's trustworthiness, of his faithfulness, even when it looks like he's anything but? Well, the answer, of course, is Jesus See, when King David had the storms pounding on his life, when he's been anointed king and yet he's threatened by King Saul, he's living in caves, he's running for his life for 13 years and the pressure is mounting and the levees are beginning to crack and show signs of weakness and the accusation of God in his heart rises up. He sits down and puts pen to paper and he writes this in Psalm 18.2, The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, and whom I take refuge my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. As Peter and his disciples are following Jesus, experiencing all sorts of ridicule and persecution and probably beginning to wonder themselves, man, is, is Jesus really going to do what he said he's going to do? Is he going to reestablish us as the kingdom we once had? As doubt and pressure begin to rise in Peter's heart, Jesus pulls Peter aside and asks him the question, who do you believe that I am, Jesus, Peter? Amidst the questions and the doubts, Peter famously replies, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, to which Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, here's what's interesting. The name Peter means little rock. In other words, Jesus says, aha, you got it, Peter. And I tell you, you are a little rock. You are like sand, Peter. And when the pressure of life comes and the the fear and the insecurity rise in your heart, you get molded and you get pounded and you get shaped. Even when a little 13-year-old girl says, hey, you were with Jesus, weren't you? And he says, I swear I don't know the man. Jesus says, oh, but Peter, that confession that I am who I claim to be, that confession that I will do what I said I will do, That confession that I am the long-awaited Messiah, the, the liberator of your soul, the healer of your heart, and the conqueror of your fears, on that rock, I'm going to build a new community of people who are going to trust wholeheartedly in my love for them, so much so that they can't help but overflow out of that love into the world around them, to show the nations that there is a God in heaven who does not rule by force and manipulation, who does not threaten with fear and intimidation, but who comes to love and to serve and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. On that rock, I will build my church. And what Peter could only glimpse in that moment we can see in its fullness today. Because you see, for Jesus, this wasn't just hyperbole. This wasn't just a metaphor. See, he is the rock that took the brunt of the storm of God's wrath on our behalf. He is the one who suffered the rising floods and suffered the the breaking of his own body. But then three days later, he rose again to become the unbreakable levy that you and I can surround our lives with today. See, Jesus proved his trustworthiness. He proved that he is someone we can give ourselves to completely, ganosko, because he was willing to take on the storm of God's wrath in our place. And when we see that truth, that at our worst, that in our moment of doubt and rebellion, even in that moment, Christ was willing to give himself for us. To rescue us from the sinking sands of moralism and idolatry. When you see that, you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is more than faithful. You know that he's absolutely worthy of your heart. And in that love, you can stand confident. Even when it feels like everything has been taken from you. And your heart can begin to sing like Edward Mozart sang in the moment of his difficulty in the 1700s. When he penned the words to the great hymn. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, and blood support me in the whelming flood. When every earthly prop gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. The question we have to ask ourselves today is this What are we reaching for in our moments of fear? Are we reaching for the sinking sands of creation? Or are we looking to the stabilizing rock of Christ and his salvation? And my hope for us as a church is that we would look to him in our greatest moment of need. Say, Oh, my anchor holds. My anchor holds because he is faithful. My anchor holds because he is trustworthy. My anchor holds because his unconditional love for me has made me new and has set me free. And I can love even the worst of my enemies. No matter what comes our way, our house will stand.